Well, welcome to Christian Life Academy. We're working our way through chapter one of our Confession of Faith, which is our doctrinal statement, and chapter one is of the Scriptures. And we've worked through to paragraph eight. We're kind of camped out in paragraph eight because paragraph eight really contains what is the uh, kind of issue of the day, uh, which is um, the translations of the Bible into the vulgar or common tongue. And uh, this has certainly been an issue for the church for the last uh, 40 years or so in particular. Um, it has been an issue really since uh, the beginning of time. I shouldn't say that, since the beginning of man, because in the Garden of Eden is where uh, Satan first uh, tempted Eve by questioning what God said. And then we see this progressively through the entire scriptures. Even Satan, when he's tempting Christ, uh, misquotes the scripture in trying to uh, tempt Christ. And, um, of course, Christ te- reads, uh, quotes the scripture back to him and uh, thwarts his, his uh, temptations. But, at any rate, uh, we are working our way through an understanding and an explanation of the two um, texts that have, Greek texts that have been used for translating the Bibles that we have in English today. There really is only two, and that is the modern critical text and the Textus Receptus. Textus Receptus is just Latin for received text. They called it that uh, because that was the text that the church had received, had accepted. This was the text that was in use uh, all over uh, the world in churches. And so this is why they called it that, and it uh, was the only uh, Greek translation that was available until the late uh, 1800s. And then we see uh, the Alexandrian text, uh, which there had been only a few manuscripts of, uh, come to the fore and uh, begin to compete with the Texas Receptus, and this is the difficulty today because we see this kind of widespread acceptance and uh, of the modern critical text, and the reason that you see this is pretty simple. It's because they're using humanistic uh, enlightenment principles to decide what God's word should be. Now, as we talked about uh, other paragraphs of the scriptures, we worked through them, uh, there were some critical things that we believe, and this is why they're stated in our confession. We believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the scriptures. That means that we believe that God breathed every word, every punctuation. The writers put what the Holy Spirit moved them to put. It was not a thought concept where they had a thought and so they made up words to put it. It was the actual uh, every jot and tittle, as Christ uh, talked about the Old Testament, talking about how never, never, no, not one jot or tittle will in any ways pass from the law until uh, the end of time. So, uh, and we see arguments by Paul, obviously, talking about one letter, which was Abraham, the promise to Abraham's seed, as in singular, not seeds, as in many. And he makes this argument that the promised seed was Jesus Christ. Again, we see specifically that they're making the argument based on a punctuation or even a single letter in this, in this uh, example. Not concepts or thoughts. It was specific. So that obviously figures into translation philosophies. And we did talk about those. Formal equivalence, dynamic equivalence. Formal equivalence is word for word, as close to the original Hebrew and Greek as possible. Dynamic equivalence is thoughts, concepts. It is designed to give you the same experience that the original readers would have gained from reading that. And, of course, that is an unbelievably daunting and, I would say, even impossible task for a translator to do. First, they don't know, really know how they would have originally reacted, other than what's in the Scripture. They don't know. Second, they don't know how you're going to react. Is it safe to say that when somebody preaches God's Word to you, you may not respond the way everybody else responds? Is that, or somebody else may not respond the way that everybody else responds. Are you with me on this? 
Some people will feel comfort in a passage and a message, while other people will feel conviction. You've been there on this before, right? Sometimes that happens to you, right? You hear a message about a passage and you respond one way, and then another time you hear a message on a passage and you respond another way. So if I'm a translator in dynamic equivalence, how am I going to know what way you're going to respond by the way I write it? Very difficult, isn't it? Very difficult. And yet, this is where the church is gone. Why? The simple humanistic argument. The oldest text must be the best text. The oldest text must be the best text. That is a huge difficulty. We have a number of reasons it's a difficulty, and I don't want to steal my own thunder because when we get to the end of the next section, we'll talk about a summary of comparison between the modern critical text and the Textus Receptus, and we'll talk about why there's a great difficulty there. All right, so last week we dug into specifics about the Textus Receptus. We talked about it, where it developed, where it came from, and then what ended up happening with uh, translations. Particularly, we talked about uh, the Geneva Bible. We talked about the King James Bible and how that process went. So now we're going to get into the modern critical text. So, first of all, why was the modern critical text created? Well, the first apparent motive was the purposeful corruption of Christian doctrine. Now you say, well, <laughs> you're... Right away, here you go, you're offending somebody. <laughs> That's probably true. But uh, this is the most apparent, and it's very clear. To your, I hope that I can, I can explain this to you in a way that you will see it's hard to avoid this. So, uh, wow, I can't believe I'm going on this path. I'm going to. All right, so, <laughs> look, what are conspiracy theories? What was that? Theory. Okay, yeah. conspiracy theory is a theory. Anybody else? It's about a conspiracy. <laughs> but, you know, you know, conspiracy theories don't pop out of nowhere, right? It's not like, mo- <laughs> there probably are some that pop out of nowhere, but most conspiracy theories that become popular become popular because they're plausible. That means they're possible, like it could happen. So there's things that people see and they think, well, this and this and this and this seem too coincidental to not be part of a plan. Are you with me on this? Now, all right, so it does, we can think of a lot of conspiracy I think right now you're probably all thinking of conspiracy theories that you've heard. And there are an unbelievable amount of conspiracy theories. I certainly think that it's gotten like exponentially greater number of them since the Internet, right? Since there's all this place where you can get, because before... How are you going to find out about these conspiracy theories? You know, it was somebody had to print a newsletter. You'd have to see a newsletter. And then you'd have to subscribe by mail to a newsletter. At any rate. So it's certainly changed as we have seen the advent of the Internet and then the spread of information that way. Uh, but if you think about this, I mean, whether you go to 9-11, was that a government plan conspiracy? Or was it just the act of these unbelievable, uneducated, small group of people? I don't know. Do you know? You don't know. You may think one way or another, but you don't know for sure. That's why it's called a theory. It hasn't been proved. You with me? So, is the COVID thing, was that a conspiracy? Was it done to try to control people? Was it done to try to kill people? So, it depends on whose information you believe, but you could say, well, this is, this is the uh, uh, Illuminati, the Bilderbergers, the Skull and Crossbones Club, from Yale, doesn't matter. You could believe that it's this group and that they somehow orchestrated this thing 
so that they could actually gain people's uh, submission. Okay, now, where does that come from? Well, first of all, as a result of COVID, has it gained people's submission? Yeah, it really has. And has there been a huge amount of contradiction through it? Yes, there has. And in fact, things that the government has done in response to the conspiracy theories has made the conspiracy theories seem more plausible. Like, we're going to stop you from talking about it. You're going to get deplatformed from social media. Was the government involved with deplatforming people? Yes, now it's called misinformation. Do you remember that for a short amount of time, Biden created the Department of Misinformation? The whole idea was to ferret out people who said things different than the government said? Now, of course, he doesn't have the power to do it, but he started it. And then Congress right away said, <laughs> not so fast, Mr. President, and shut him down. So you're a conspiracy theorist. You're going to see that as an attempt for them to actually plays into your theory. Are you with me on this? So do you know for sure what happened? No. How about was it a conspiracy that the Chinese government wanted to release this to kill non-Chinese? Have you heard that theory? That it actually targets DNA of different people groups? Hmm. Could that be true? It could be. I don't know. The problem is, we'll probably never for sure know. Here's what I do know. There is a conspiracy. And you know this too. Why? Because God's word tells us there is. And it's Satan who wants to overthrow God and not allow Christ to, sit, to, to get to his throne over all men. He is already at the throne of God, but he doesn't want him to take over here. So there's a conspiracy. And as much as Satan can do to derail us, he's going to. And tainting God's word so that we don't understand the truths of it is a great way for him to try to derail us. Can you see that? All right. Wow, that was a big, but I had to bring it back. You see them? Okay. All right. So why do I say then that there's a purposeful corruption of Christian doctrine? Well, let's look at the history of what happened. The first heresy of Gnosticism denied Christ was come in the flesh because they thought that the flesh is pure evil. Now, this might sound familiar to you. First of all, we've talked about Gnosticism, okay? so it should sound familiar from that perspective. But it should also sound uh, familiar because there are cults that believe this today. The flesh is pure evil. They said special knowledge of Christ was required for salvation. The revealed word was not available to all. 1 John was a response to this. 1 John was a response to Gnosticism. Let me read you what it says in 1 John 4, verses 1 through 4. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. So, here we are. We're in post-resurrection, post-Pentecost. John writes, already many false prophets gone out into the world. Verse 2. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. So, don't catch yourself in the isogetic, misquoting, out-of-context scripture that says that judge not others. You shouldn't judge others. Judge not lest you be judged. You know what? Frankly, you should be judged. But the New Testament is full of things that we should judge. And here's one of them. Try the spirits, whether they are of God. You know what it's saying? You should judge whether somebody's of God or not. You should judge whether they're of God or not. And it gives the guideline. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh 
is of God. Now you can think of a lot of other verses in the New Testament, particularly even the apostles, that wrote about what is a statement of faith. What do you believe? Peter, what do you believe? We see all these things, right? And they don't all say this. They don't all say, Jesus Christ come in the flesh. But here, John is dealing with Gnosticism, which had been growing substantially. So he's making it clear. He, anyone that believes that Jesus Christ was flesh, come in the flesh, is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is, is in the, comes in the flesh is not of God. And that is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now is already in the world. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So, you recognize the end. Verse 4. But don't forget why he's saying that. He's saying that because here is a simple test for believers. If someone believes that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, they're of God. If someone says they're not, they're not of God. So Gnostics said he wasn't. Well, it's kind of hard to argue with 1 John 4, isn't it? I mean, that's pretty clear. So how did they argue with 1 John 4? 1 John's not a legitimate Bible, a Bible chapter, uh, book. That's how. It's, it shouldn't be in the canon. It's not the scripture. That's how. Just discount it. In other words, they changed God's word to justify their position. See this? They just eradicated it. Now, who believes this today? Who believes this today? What the Gnostics believe? Who are modern-day Gnostics? Well, anybody can be modern-day. But what cults, other religions, we could say? By the way, are cults religions? Or are they not religions? They are religions. You can't say, oh, that's not a religion. Only Christianity is a religion. No. Religion is adherence to beliefs. So it, it's not what it is. Christianity should be Christianity, but Christianity is not even Christianity. Are you with me on this? There's too many people that say they're Christians and they're not Christians. Anyway, let's not go down that path. So, who's modern day? Anybody know? Who was that? Jehovah's Witness. Jehovah's Witness do not believe that, God, that Christ came in the flesh. Who else? Who else believes this? Let me ask this more specifically. Who else believes that everything in flesh is pure evil? Huh? Buddhists do believe that. That wasn't what I was looking for, but that's a good one. Anybody else? Mormons, no. They don't believe that. They are messed up too. Muslims, no, they don't believe it either. Christian scientists. Christian scientists. Right? The flesh is evil. And it doesn't really matter. What's better for you is that your spirit is enlightened and you float up to the sky. That's a really nutshell Christian scientific. But they still believe that. All right. All right, so the MCT, so we're starting with this, but we're not leaving it there. We're moving on. MCT is based on Alexandrian family of texts. Now, there is not any debate about that. So I'm... As we go through this, I'll try to identify to you the things that the adherents of the MCT would disagree with, all right? Now, we have a chart on the back wall. I don't think I'm going to show this. I don't think, because it's too small. But there's the second one from the right back there. Shows the Texas Receptus and the Alexandria text, and it shows the timeline. It's a good chart. So take a look at that if you'd like to get a little more details. Anyway, 
so they don't argue that the Alexandrian family of texts is what the MCT is based on. Now, I know we've already talked about uh, Sinaiticus, and do you remember this, Sinaiticus? And I can't remember if the slide's going to actually show how Sinaiticus was actually found. I don't want to steal my thunder if it is. If it doesn't, I'll try to cover that back up. And Vaticanus, remember that one? Remember we've talked about that, mentioned it a few times. Vaticanus, where do you think maybe it comes from? The Vatican. And Sinaiticus comes from the Sinai. Okay, so this is where they're from. That's why they're named that. But they're both considered Alexandrian texts. Now the question is, what is an Alexandrian? Obvious question, what's an Alexandrian text? What are we talking about here? Well, first of all, let's talk about who Alexandria was. Alexandria was a consistent source of heresies. We see this over and over again in history. Now, we always, already spent a great deal of time talking about uh, Arius and Arianism. And then we talked about uh, Alexander from Antioch, who combated with Arius, intellectually combated with Arius to his whole life. Um, and then Athanasius, who continued that. How do we, why do we talk about those? Well, we're talking about them because we're talking about the histories of creeds. So we got the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasius Creed. The Nicene Creed and the Athanasius Creed were both responses to Arianism. Arius. Arius was the see of Alexandria. That's where he was the head of the church in Alexandria. Alexander, confusing, Alexander was the head of the church in Antioch. And then he was succeeded by uh, Athanasius. All right, so <laughs> I mentioned up here uh, Origen. Yeah, that, that looks like Origen, but it's Origen. So Origen Adamantius, who lived from 185 to 254 A.D., headed the Alexandria School of Theology. Arius followed Origen. Arius followed Origen. He headed the Alexandria School of Theology. He believed compromise with society was essential. He sought to harmonize Christianity with pagan philosophies, such as Plato or the Stoics. In other words, he believed to be most effective, the church had basically to get to, maybe you've heard this before, meet people where they're at. He was an early proponent of that. Meet people where they're at. So he would modify Christian principles to make it more palatable. And this is what he taught should be done. And obviously, when you're, there's not that many schools of theology when we get to the second century. And so, obviously, he's going to influence a whole lot of Christians and future bishops, elders. He held multiple heretical views, included. This is not all of them. Christ was lower than the Father. He was a second-class God. He was God, but he was not the same as the Father. He wasn't equal. This is why we see in the Nicene and the Athanasius Creed this whole concept of that they're all the same. We see it repeated over and over and over again in those. Why? Because they're dealing with this heresy that came out of Alexandria. Who spouted the heresy? Was it Origen? No. Origen was a couple hundred years before. It was Arius who still held it. Souls pre-existed. Souls pre-existed. And at death, they transmigrate. What's that mean? Reincarnation. Except not to other... Uh, species, to people. So your soul existed before you were in a body, and then after you die, it'll go to another body. That's what he believed. Does the Bible teach anything different than that? When you die, you're either going to paradise or the judgment. Scriptures are completely 
clear on this issue. Purgatory and the eventual salvation of all, including Satan. So you say, where did the idea of purgatory come? Origin. That's where it came from. He believed that eventually everyone would be saved. How? Transmigration. Transmigration. Eventually Satan would be saved. There would be no one in hell. Now the interesting thing is, if they transmigrate, how's their purgatory? Well, because you'd go there, it's like a waiting room. So you get another body to go into. Then, psh. Scripture was largely allegory, especially Genesis. Hmm. Can you think of anyone else who tried to question God's word in the very beginning? Today, where do the atheists go to attack God's word? Where have they gone for hundreds of years? Genesis. Genesis. Genesis can't be true. Why? Because we know that the earth is millions of years old. Really? That's interesting. How do you know that? Well, all the scientific evidence. Really? What scientific evidence? Well, the rock layers. Carbon dating. I'm so glad you brought that up. Here's a video series of seven videos. <laughs> There's problems with all those things. I mean, carbon dating is ridiculous. It's been proven wrong so many times. Brand new bones of animals have been carbon dated at a million years old. New volcanic rock has been carbon dated at millions of years old. Kind of a problem. Besides the fact is that the earth now is four billion years old. That's what they say. And just a couple years ago, it was 2 billion years ago. Before that, it was 1 billion years ago. Before that, it was 500 million years. Then it was 100 million years. Then it was a million. So what scientific evidence is giving them a longer Earth? Making Genesis allegory means God's not God. The promises aren't the promises. The flood didn't happen. Israel isn't the chosen nation. Takes away all that. Christ's resurrection was allegorical. He didn't really raise from the dead. Why? He didn't really die. Why? Flesh is evil. He wasn't in the flesh. He was a spirit. He looked like flesh. It looked like he died. He didn't die. He was a spirit. Can't kill a spirit, right? So this is what Elijah believed. He, I mean, his writings say this. It's not like it's a question. He is considered the father of textual criticism of the Scripture. He attacked the writings of Paul and of Peter. He believed textually that those could not be Scripture. Take Paul and Peter's writings out of the New Testament. You don't have a lot of New Testament left, do you? You know who also criticized Paul and Peter's writings? Gnostics. Origen clearly held Gnostic beliefs. Not any question. He matches the Gnostics. So this is the guy who now is running the Alexandrian School of Theology. The Council of Constantinople, we talked about this, anathematized him in 553. Now, Origen was long dead. All right. But they recognized that his teaching had caused 
these heresies, including the Arian heresy. His, at the Council of Constantinople, he was anathematized. Now, why was there a council at Constantinople? What was Constantinople at the time? It was the, of the empire. What? It was the capital. It was the capital of the empire. So this was a gathering of elders who all came together at the Council of Constantinople, and they are the ones who were dealing with the Arius the heresy, and they said, look, we've got to nip this in the bud to go back because we don't want others to start following the teachings of Origen, and then they'll be on board. It's going to cause an even greater problem with heresies in the church. So that's why they went back to him. This is why they said he denied the literal interpretation of scriptures, he denied Genesis completely, he developed an allegorical approach to scripture. Do you still see this today? You do. This still exists today. The scripture is allegory. What is, okay. Is anybody wondering what an allegory is? No? Everybody knows what an allegory is? Everybody just would nod your head yes if you know what an allegory is. If you don't nod your head, then I'm going to assume I should explain it. No, everybody's not nodding their head. Okay, so an allegory is a story with a meaning. That's it. All right. If you look up the definition, it's going to be a little more complex. But that is it. That's it. It's a story with a meaning. So you tell the story so that people will get the meaning of the story, right? And you've heard these many times, right? You could think there's some other ways that Christ did that, not allegorical. Allegory would be that an entire story is that way. So, Beowulf. Allegory. Do we think it's historical? No. We don't think that. Nobody thinks that. The writer didn't think that. It was an allegory. A lot of movies today, a lot of books today are allegories. Why? They're, they're trying to get the message across to people about something that's going on without having it directly in the story. That's trusting that people actually think. But I'm going to tell you, there are a lot of movies that Hollywood has made over the last 20 years that are spot on allegorically. They are showing the problem that man has with ultimate corruption. They are showing the problem that man has with trying to fix things. They're showing the problem that going for an idyllic society would create. They're showing the problem with government overreach. They're showing how free speech matters. How do they do it? Not direct. The assumption is giving the allegory will help people to think about it and to get it. I'm shocked. When I see some movie that somebody says, oh, you should watch it, and I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then I watch the movie, and I'm like, I don't even know, I'm not interested in this movie, but I'll watch the movie, and then I'm like, man, this is really good, because what they're saying is absolutely true. This is why I like Star Trek, the original series. Hey, okay, I'm a Trekkie. Go back. That's, that's not why I do this, by the way. Anyway, that's the shin. Anyway, uh, Star Trek, the original series, was all allegory. It was all about contemporary problems, told in a space story. So how do they deal with all these issues? Well, you couldn't come out and say them because people would get offended. So what did they do? They made a story about some alien race or something in space and told that story. Amazing. If people would have just paid more attention then, we'd be in better shape. Think about when the Star Trek was made in the 60s. They dealt with rebellion in the youth and how badly that's going to go. 
they dealt with trying to fight war for people who didn't want a war fought for them. Vietnam. They, they dealt with all these issues. You can't tell unless you're paying attention. You're like, wow, are they trying to say? Yeah, that's exactly what they're trying to say. And all the actors and the producer of the show said, yeah, that's what we were trying to do. We were trying to deal with these social issues in a way that people would accept. So they think about it. So we can't say that allegories are bad. The message they might try to give is bad, right? Like you would have an allegory about how, you know, the subtext is, is that homosexuality is okay. Are there some movies like that? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Are they good? No. But the concept of an allegory, we're okay with. Taking God's word and translating it or saying that it is an allegory is a huge problem. Because now it is not about the verbal plenary inspiration. It's not about every word. It's about the ideas and the concepts. And, of course, this is what I'm saying is a difficulty. Hollywood writes these movies about free speech and about how giving up these basic rights to free speech are going to be a huge problem. But then when Facebook and Twitter and others start blocking Republicans, where's Hollywood? Oh, that's what they should do. That's what a lot of them are saying. Not most of them. Most of them are like, I don't think so. This is not good. But the outspoken ones, of course they did. Did they get the allegories of what movies for years have been saying? No, they didn't get it. So what happens if you make the whole scripture into an allegory? Are people going to get it? No. This is why God gave us his word, not his ideas. He gave us his word so we know exactly what he meant. Did God already put on man's heart the law? They did. Why do people feel guilty when they do evil things? Because the law of God is written on their hearts, as the Bible tells us. So why do we have to have the Word of God? Because in our corrupted state, we don't get it perfectly. We need God's Word to clarify it to us, to preserve it, so we don't twist it. We don't get the wrong idea. Because we do. So, making the Scripture allegory becomes a real problem. Easy for us to take it to mean whatever we want it to mean. Who holds that view today? Emerging church. Emerging church. Huge movement. Lots of churches will be joining the emerging church. Which, by the way, they recently changed their name. What's the, you guys remember the new name of that is now? It's not the emerging church anymore because that got sullied. So there's another name for it, that movement. I can't remember what it is. You heard it, that there is one? I can't remember what the name of it is. If you think of it, shout it out. But the idea is, the emerging church's primary idea is, is that the Bible... God's word is whatever you believe it is to you. So, and by the way, it's not God's word until it speaks to you. And then whatever it says to you, that's what God's word is. You can understand how messages on that would be very difficult, wouldn't they? Yeah, that's the emerging church. Sounds familiar. Hmm. Origen created a six-column Bible called the Hexapla. The Hexapla. He only chose translations that he agreed with from the Old Testament. The Hexapla. Uh, Hexapla. So, he created this Bible, which is going to surface back up again. We're going to talk about it in a minute. All right. So, Eusebius of Caesarea, who obviously succeeded Origen. It was after Origen, I should say. He was a disciple of Origen. He was asked by Constantine in 331 A.D., 
to produce 50 copies of the Bible in Greek. Now, we talked about uh, Constantine before, and Constantine was well-intentioned. He was a new believer. So if you're the emperor of Rome, or the Holy Roman Empire, well, that wasn't the Holy Roman Empire yet, it was the Roman Empire. If you are the emperor of Rome, right, of the Roman Empire, out of Constantinople, if you are the emperor of that, and now all of a sudden you became a believer, you might make some changes, right? Since the official religion of the Romans was paganism, there's going to be some huge changes. Would you agree? Going to be some huge changes. And that's what Constantine did. Now, can we agree with all the changes he made? Well, we don't have to. We don't have to. But let's understand at least his motivation. Was he a um, scholarly believer? No. No. But he was the one who was emperor when Arius and Alexander were battling. He was the one. Now, Eusebius was in Caesarea. He was not in Alexander. He was asked to create these copies of the Bible because Constantine had heard that he had studied the scriptures and translating the scriptures, and he thought he would be best to come up with a Bible that would actually give all the translations that were necessary for a better understanding and unity. Of course, the problem is, is that he's a disciple of Origen. This is the problem. So, you see here, here's the ecumenical Bible. That's what I was mentioning. It was Unite the Empire. This Bible that he wrote, this 50 copies, was never accepted by the church. Was never accepted by the church. The church rejected it. Why? Because all the translations in the Bibles that, sorry, all the translations that were used were Origen's. So what Bibles were these? Well, he took the Hexapla, and he basically came up with a script with one Bible based on the Hexapla. I don't want to get ahead. Okay. All right. Oh, well, yeah, here we go. All right. So, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. Next slide. All right. So he produced 50 Bibles. Now, these 50 Bibles, as I mentioned, are not accepted by the church. The church does not accept them because the church sees problems with the translations. Suddenly, the Bibles that they have, the books that they have, the letters that they have, don't match this Bible. This Bible has things in it that are not in theirs. And this Bible, more importantly, has a lot of things that are, that are missing that are in theirs. Scriptures that they view as key are gone. So what happened to the 50 Bibles? I'm so glad you asked. Codex Vaticanus, which is called this the B, it's the B of the Alexandrian text, was referenced by the Vatican Library in 1521. We see this in writing that they had this, this edition. This was one, and according to 1521, this was one of the books that Eusebius wrote. This is one of the 50 Bibles that he produced. The Vatican had one. It was written on vellum. It contained books of the Apocrypha, was missing Genesis 1 through 4828. I wonder why. It did not include 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and Revelation. The first collation of its pages in 1799, but it was not found, or it was unpublished, I should say, until 1819. Now, where was it in the Vatican? It's an excellent question. The Vatican, of course, is a huge repository of ancient things. The church does not even release uh, what, out of everything that it contains, but there is uh, storehouses in Rome 
of ancient artifacts that the Vatican holds. And this particular book was in the Pope's personal library. It was in the Pope's personal library. Now you might say, oh, this is where the Pope goes sideways. No, it was on a bookshelf in the Pope's personal library of heretical books. Now it's discovered, and there are initially, at least, the indication seems to be that the individuals that wanted to study this book wanted to do so from understanding the heretical past. But that's not how it ended up. It ended up through the idea of modern textual criticism of being one of the best sources of Scripture because it was the oldest. Now, you remember when we talked about how, why don't we have the original autographs, the original copies of the Scripture that the apostles wrote, why we don't have them anymore? Because they disintegrated. Now, I'm not talking like the movies, like all of a sudden, there's dust. I don't mean like that. I mean they were used so much, they were passed around, they were copied, that they broke down, they were written on papyrus, so the material was not something that could actually last, so they broke down. So what do we have? We have copies made, that's why they made copies, because this is common practice. You knew that something in writing was not going to last, so they made copies and copies and copies and copies as it were around. So all the churches had their own, and of course they would continue to make copies. This book did not fall apart. Why? Well, first of all, notice that it was written on vellum. Vellum did not become common use until the 300s. So this was a copy of one of the original books that Eusebius wrote. It was not worn out because it wasn't in use. If it had been getting used all the time, it would have broke down. That's why we don't have a bunch of manuscripts from the 300s. We don't have it. Why? Because the ones that were in use broke down. The Codex Sinaiticus, found by Constantine von Tickendorf at St. Catherine's Monastery in 1846 on what's considered Mount Sinai. However, all of it was not discovered until the 20th and 21st centuries. It wasn't even available until 2009. You understand, this is one of the bases of the Bible today. Not available fully until 2009. Large portions of the Old Testament were missing, about half. It included the Apocrypha. It was written on parchment. The manuscript had multiple corrections on every page by as many as ten different editors. Let me make sure you understood what I just said. The manuscript had multiple handwritten corrections on every page by as many as ten different people. These two texts are the core of the modern critical text. Oh, by the way, Sinaiticus, why is only half of it used? Guess where it was? It was in a burn basket. They were using the pages to start fires. It was heretical, so they were using it to start fires. Now this is a monastery. You remember what monasteries do with God's word, right? Preserve it. Protect it. There's not a chance that a monastery would be burning a copy if they didn't think it was heretical. That's where it was found. So we have these two major copies. One is found on the bookshelf of the Pope's personal library for heretical, heretical works. The other one was in a burn basket in, in the Sinai and being used to start fires. Of the total 5,300 extant Greek manuscripts, only 50 are Alexandrian. 
They disagree with each other over 3,000 times in the Gospels alone. Now, if you have 50 Alexandrian texts and they have 3,000 disagreements in the Gospels alone, while the Textus Receptus has fewer than 100 disagreements among all the manuscripts, do you think you could, get, you could have an idea of which one would be more accurate? You would think. Church history proves the Alexandrian texts were not accepted. Text compiled by Erasmus that is challenged to the Roman Catholic Church used the Byzantine text. What did Erasmus do? He published a Greek New Testament. You, you remember this? We talked about him last week, week before. 83,000 quotes by ancient church father quoted from the Byzantine text, not other text types. 83,000 quotes by ancient church fi fathers quoted from the Byzantine text. That's the Textus Receptus not from the Alexandrian text. The Byzantine text was translated in use in Europe, Asia, and Africa. The Alexandrian was not translated or used. So this book, the, the Alexandrian texts were not in use. They had not been translated. They had been hidden for literally millennia. Hard for us to get our heads around that. Thousands of years. 1,800 years. Hard for us to grasp that. 1,800 years? Brooke Foss Westcott and Fenton John Anthony Hort, which is together, that's what we refer to as Westcott Hort, are primarily responsible for the original version of the MCT, publishing the New Testament in the original Greek in 1881. All modern Greek editions of the MCT closely follow the Westcott Hort version. For example, the Nestle Allen New Testament in Greek was originally based on Westcott and Hort's publication, including additional material from Constantine von Tickendorf, who originally found the Codex Sinaiticus, and Richard Weymouth, whose works were based on Westcott and Hort. So through the years, Nestle Allen, particularly, has tried to distance themselves from Westcott and Hort. And rightfully so, because I'm going to read you a bunch of Westcott and Hort quotes, and you're going to see, yeah, there's huge problems here, and you don't really want to trust these guys. But their, their translation is based on theirs. And when you go back into the history of their stuff, they tell you this. They've never come up with a major change. They still follow that. They use the quotes from the people who embraced Westcott and Hort, and that's how they came up with their version of the Greek. Due to the incredible influence that Westcott and Hort had in the modern New Testament Greek editions and translations, we must consider their views on translation as well as the scriptures themselves. All right, <clears throat> so you're probably already reading the quotes, and that's fine. <laughs> but let me, just, let me just make sure that I, I explain to you the import of this, how significant this is. If we take the Texas Receptus and we base our Bible translations on that, we are basing it on the text that was received by the church and has been in continuous use from the church since the original writings. It matches the vast majority, 98% of the pieces and whole books of ancient texts that we have in the scripture. It was canonized by the church. Constantine didn't decide the books of the Bible, regardless of what Dan Brown says. The church had already decided the books of the Bible. The church itself held councils to discuss the books of the Bible, to discuss what was canon of scripture. All these things were done by the church. 
the church. Now we shift to this idea that scholars can somehow come up with a better understanding of what God's word should be. Now, if you were to do that today, you would pick somebody like, I don't know, MacArthur. Right? You'd say, well, this is a smart guy. Maybe a few years ago you said R.C. Sproul. Right? I'd pick him. Let's put him on the committee. He's going to be good. Well, I don't know how much he really knew. I honestly don't know how much he really knew Greek and Hebrew and could translate that properly. But the point is, is that you would go for men of God, substantial men of God, people who you would trust handling God's word, particularly in such an important issue. So let's see what the two guys who came up with this translation, by the way, single-handedly, these two men by themselves came up with the translation from Greek to English. I'm sorry from the original scrolls to this Greek edition. That's what they came up with. They didn't translate. They came up with a Greek, a Greek copy that then translators used to come up with the Bible. All right. So here's Westcott. He, Jesus, never speaks of himself directly as God, but the aim of his revelation was to lead men to see God in him. Really. How many verses can you think of where he claims he's God? Many. John does not expressly affirm the identification of the word with Jesus Christ. Has he read First John chapter 1? I reject the infallibility of Holy Scriptures overwhelmingly. I reject the infallibility of Holy Scriptures overwhelmingly. In other words, he believes the Scriptures have errors. Our Bible, as well as our faith, is a mere compromise. No one now, I suppose, holds that the first three chapters of Genesis, for example, give a literal history. I could never understand how anyone reading them with open eyes could think they did. I never read an account of a miracle, but I seem instinctively to feel its improbability and discover somewhat of evidence in the, uh, discover somewhat of evidence in the account of it. In other words, he doesn't believe in miracles. Thinks the accounts don't, don't reflect that there is any evidence for it. David is not a chronological, but a spiritual person. You see any problems here? No doubt the language of the rubric is unguarded, but it saves us from the error of connecting the presence of Christ's glorified humanity with place. Heaven is a state and not a place. Not a real place. Just kind of how it is, you know, you could be today, you could be, you know, it's such a nice day, it's such beautiful, everything's going so good, this is heaven. Not an actual place you're going to go to. Not much comfort. Yet the unseen is the largest part of life. Heaven lies above, about us now in infancy alone, and by swift, silent pauses for thought, for recollection, for aspiration, we can not only keep fresh the influence of that diviner atmosphere, but breathe it more habitually. In other words, as you grow, you're, you're, your environment is becoming more of heaven for you. We may reasonably hope, by patient, resolute, faithful, united endeavor, to find heaven about us here, the glory of our earthly life. I suppose I am a communist by nature. I don't, do I even have to address that one? We agreed unanimously that we are, as things are now, forbidden to pray for the dead apart from the whole church in our public services. No restriction is placed upon private devotions. In other words, he's saying that you, the church shouldn't do it, but you, we can privately pray for the dead. Well, that's obviously a misunderstanding of Scripture, too. All right, quotes by Hort. Evangelicals seem to me perverted. 
There are, I fear, still more serious differences between us on the subject of authority, especially the authority of the Bible. What's the disagreement with evangelicals? They believe the Bible's authority. He doesn't. We have no sure knowledge of future punishment, and the word eternal has a far higher meaning. In other words, we don't know what's going to happen with punishment eternally. You know, the Bible's very clear on these subjects. It's not like it's not clear. But the book which has most engaged me is Darwin. Whatever may be thought of it, it is a book that one is proud to be contemporary with. My feeling is strong that the theory is unanswerable. So he questions the scripture, but he believed Darwin. The theory must be true. No one can question it. The popular doctrine of substitution is an immoral and material counterfeit. Nothing can be more unscriptural than the limiting of Christ bearing our sins and sufferings to his death. But indeed, that is only one aspect of an almost universal heresy. So he's saying that Christ did not substitute himself for your sins. Hmm. Brings up a lot of questions, doesn't it? I confess I have no repugnance to the primitive doctrine of, ran of a ransom paid to Satan. I can see no other possible form in which the doctrine of a ransom is all at all tenable. Anything is better than the doctrine of ransom to the Father. In other words, he believes the payment for sin had to be paid to Satan. Not to God. It is, of course, true that we can only know God through human forms, but then I think that the whole Bible echoes the language of Genesis 1.27 and so assures us that human forms are divine forms. Completely taking that scripture out of context. He's saying that man is God. The only way we can relate to each other is through these godly forms that we hold. I don't know about you, but I'm not so happy with my godly form. <laughs> Protestants must unlearn the crazy horror of the idea of priesthood. I'm talking about the priesthood of believers. That you can somehow go to God. Hmm. The pure Romanish views seem to be a nearer and more likely to lead to the truth than the evangelical. What's their view? There are priests that can communicate with God. You can't. You confess to them. They take your confession to God. I agree with you in thinking it a pity that Maurice verbally repudiates purgatory. The idea of purgation, cleansing by fire, seems to me inseparable from what the Bible teaches us of the divine chastisements. Obviously, completely likes the idea of purgatory and thinks the Bible supports it. It is quite impossible to judge the value of what appear to be the trifling alterations merely by reading them one after another. Taken together, they have often important bearings which few would think of first. The difference between a picture, say of Raphael, and a feeble copy of it is made up a number of trivial differences. We have successfully resisted being warned off dangerous ground where the needs of revision require that it should not be shirked. It is, one can hardly doubt, the beginning of a new period of church history. So far, the angry objectors have reason for their astonishment. You know what he's saying? Hey, you know what? We've got to stick hard to our work. Because if you're looking at a forge, at something that's, that's not the real copy, it's going to be made up of a whole bunch of errors. And so the current Bible must be made up of a whole bunch of errors. Because we're working with something that's way older. Do you see this? That's what he's saying. You know what that does. It takes God's superintendence and providence over the preservation of scriptures out. It ignores that doctrine, which we talked about. We believe that. Revelation 3.15 might no doubt bear the Arian meaning, the first thing created. Talking about Christ, the first thing created. 
In the New Testament, as in almost all prose writings, which have been much copied, corruptions by interpolation are many times more numerous than corruptions by omission. So what he's saying is, is that there's been a whole bunch of things added. Errors by things being added. Not removed, not omitted, but added. Why? Because the copy he's working with is missing them. They're not there. I'm inclined to think that no such state as Eden, I mean the popular notion, ever existed. And that Adam's fall in no degree differed from the fall of each of his descendants, as Coleridge justly argues. In other words, there was no Eden. Satan sinned. Everybody sinned. That's just the way it was. There was no perfect place. Didn't exist. Of course, that's... You shouldn't feel good about that. Why? Well, that means that there's not a perfect place you're going to go to. But I'm not able to go as far as you in asserting the absolute infallibility of a canonical writing. So he's writing a letter here, and he says, look, I, I don't agree there's a canon. I reject the word infallibility of Holy Scripture overwhelmingly. There's no question. Don't believe the Scriptures don't have errors. The Scriptures do. Regarding hell, certainly in my case it proceeds from no personal dread. When I have been living most godlessly, I have never been able to freight myself with visions of a distant future, even while I held the doctrine. So even when he doesn't believe in hell, when he did believe in hell, it didn't make him act less godless. I'm pretty confident in that statement alone. He's saying he's not a believer. All these say he's not a believer. That clearly does. The fact is, I do not see how God's justice can be satisfied without every man suffering in his own person the full penalty for his sins. In other words, rejecting Christ. Regarding baptism, at the same time, in language stating that we maintain baptismal regeneration as the most important of doctrines, the pure Romanist view seems to be to me nearer and more likely to lead to than truth than the evangelical. In other words, he believes that just baptizing an infant as the Romans did, is more likely the correct way. Not a believer's baptism. That's a baptism of regeneration. I suppose I am a communist by nature. Him too. I cannot say that I see much as yet to soften my deep hatred for democracy in all its forms. He hates democracy. Interesting. The fundamental text of the late extant Greek MSS generally is beyond all question identical with the dominant Antiochian or Greco-Syrian text of the second half of the 4th century. So he's saying that the modern text that was used at the time as the Textus Receptus is identical to what was being used in the Greek church in the third, in the late 300s, the 4th century. His doesn't match it. But he's saying that the Texas Receptus does match that. All right, we have to stop some of their beliefs. We have to stop there because we're out of time. But you can see how there's, a, there's some problems. Would you agree? There's some problems with these guys who are going to write a Greek New Testament, Testament that's going to be used by a majority of translators today. Let's close in a word of prayer.